Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp for Android, the ultimate media player for your desktop and Android device, featuring wireless sync. Download it free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 289, recorded February 23rd, 2011. Proxied Surfing. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro.com. If your small or medium business needs superior protection from spam, viruses, and hackers, call 877 the number 4 Astaro for a free trial of the Astaro Security Gateway in your business. Or visit them online at ASTARO.com. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you, your loved ones, and everyone else on the internet from predators and and viruses and bad guys, and, and at least explains how all this stuff works. Here he is, the man who does that, the man of the hour, Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com. And in this case, Leo, maybe even foreign governments or your own government that doesn't want you to know what's going on or talk to other people or your corporations or your schools or whatever. We're going to talk about something this week that, oddly enough, in our sixth year, we've never directly discussed, which is proxied surfing, the idea of connecting to the web through proxy servers for a number of different reasons. Um, the it sort of came onto my radar when I was reading about what was going on, of course, in Egypt in the last couple of weeks, um, with them disconnecting the internet and then reconnecting it, and how strong and important the whole the uh, Facebook and social networking had become for organizing um, groups, and then um, and I ran across a couple of references to some some proxy sites that offered their services, for example, in China, that allowed people to use them in order to bypass the Chinese restrictions that were being imposed. And I thought, you know, that's obviously a great topic for the podcast. We've never really addressed all the different reasons you would use proxies and exactly how the technology works. So that's our topic for this week, in addition to other stuff. Very interesting. And, uh, you know, what's been interesting in uh, in uh, both Libya and it happened in Egypt and it happened in Tunisia and I want to expect it will happen everywhere else where they try to restrict the Internet is companies coming along saying, well, you can always use dial-up. And while we don't, you know, in the West think of dial-up as a, as a decent solution, it's plenty for tweeting and emailing and setting up Facebook pages. And obviously, I think the time has I, – I, I'm very bullish. I think the time has come. I think the internet is really a disruptive force in a lot of ways, and it's very exciting. So, well, it's uh, clear that it is because for a nation to take itself off the net, I mean, that does not come at right. zero cost oh, no. to the nation. Yeah, and so and it doesn't only, come with success, according. I mean, at least in the case of Egypt, right, right, and and so so given the fact that it it would be so, dis, I mean, so disruptive to a country's operation f- to disconnect it from the rest of the world you, you'd have to you'd have to imagine that the that the government that decides to do that 
is, you know, weighing the pros and cons and looking at at the benefit they'll get from being repressive in that fashion, meaning that it is so powerful for their citizenry in this case that, you know, they that they want to disconnect from the rest of the world uh, to have access to it. So, yeah. Well, let's uh, we're going to get to that subject in just a moment, uh, of course. But before we do, how about some security updates? Absolutely. Um, it's been quiet because we had a the, the second Tuesday of February was a biggie for Microsoft. Um, things have been busy. Uh, and welcome back, by the way. It's, uh, Tom did a great job I, you, for us. Thank you for reminding me. Thank you, Tom, for filling in. I'm so sorry. I, Tom, I owe you an apology. Yes, three shows he did. Yeah, he did a great job for us. Good. So thank you. Uh, yeah, thank he's you. Uh, you uh, yeah, I was I remember being very nervous when and at the idea of not having you. Uh, of course, Tom uh, stood in once before and did a great job. And this time it was like, oh, hi, Tom. Welcome back. Yeah. So, in yeah. fact, I had to send my email to someone else. I almost sent it to Tom this morning uh, with all the show notes. I said, wait, wait a minute. Leo's back. No, I'm back. I'm back. Please. No. I had a great time. It was a wonderful trip. I'm wearing an alpaca sweater even right now that I got. And I showed yesterday, I showed everybody my Uruguayan hat, but I haven't showed you yet. This is, uh, now that's the ensemble. anyway security updates (laughs) okay so the only real big news is that anyone who is still using or needs to use java on their system needs to update it um it was just moved by by oracle slash sun uh a major update from them to java 6 update 24 it fixed a large collection of vulnerabilities in total, 21, 19 of which can be used to remotely install malicious software. So it's important. And I did get a kick out of seeing now sort of the wisdom out there. I, I, I was reading other people saying, you know, since Java seems to be having so many problems now and it's surpassed Adobe in vulnerabilities and exploits, um, removing it unless it's needed would probably be a good idea. And I'm thinking, hmm, where have we heard that before? So, of course, that's something that I have said a number of times is that sometimes Java gets installed, you remove what it was that brought it in, and, you know, it stays behind. The fact that it's in your system allows your browser to engage it, and that's what the bad guys are using in order to now perpetrate browser-based um exploits against your system based on java which you know very much like something else like real media for example that you know you'd like to not need or not not have installed unless you're really using it uh can be used and there are some people a lot of people installing java these days uh for something uh, called minecraft which is a really popular game with tens of millions of players so there there are some reasons to install java but i'm surprised because wasn't that the promise of java that it would be sandboxed well, yeah, and if the code was perfect, then that's what you'd get. And of course, that's why when Adobe announced sandboxing in in um, in Adobe Reader Ten, it was like, okay, good, but it's like that's not going to solve all the problems. I mean, they're just the the problem is it's it's little mistakes that are made. And one thing is really interesting about these particular exploits. And that is that in some cases, the exploits 
are machine independent, meaning that you know traditionally when we've had a buffer overflow, it's it's been it's been Intel code which would which the processor would execute in the buffer. All of the things we're talking about traditionally have been extremely machine dependent, but what Java brings you is a machine independent interpreter that I mean that's one of the whole points of it is it's it it's it's an interpreter that is able to to execute the same Java code on on in a plat in a platform agnostic fashion. Well, what's a little funny is that some of these exploits are machine independent exploits, meaning that they can do their bad stuff even on non Intel based machines. So it's like yikes. Um, so, but but yes, uh, clearly if if you need Java, you need it. But there's a, there's certainly a window of you know a subset of people who have it just sort of around, like oh well you know maybe I'll need that someday. And the fact is, if you're if you've got it, you really need to keep it updated. As is the, the you know like with the same case with all of our browsers and and add-ons and so forth for browsers because that's the new the new vector for for exploitation these days. So. Um, anyway, it's at, it's at update 24. Um, probably your Java installation will check for you. You'll get a little square icon down in your tray telling you that it wants to update. But uh, if it's something you know you have, you might want to make sure that you've got update 24 running. And okay. hot off the press this morning was news of a new bind vulnerability. Bind being the the preeminent DNS server now, this is not a, a vulnerability like we've talked about before where um, web spoofing can occur, but it is a, a, a problem for existing versions of Bind. It affects versions 9.7.1 through 9.7.2-P3, and there is an updated version, 9.7.3. What happens is... In in any high performance server, and a DNS server is a is a server just like a web server, for example, you wh- where requests are coming in on, on a continuing basis at various rates, but more or less like you know the server is being flooded with requests, which is the case with with typical fast DNS servers. Um, you have a you have a, a queue of requests which are are in a buffer and that queue is filling and emptying depending upon the instantaneous number of requests coming in then serving that queue in a in a state of the art execution model you'll have what's known as worker threads you'll have multiple workers which are are conceptually each coming back to the queue getting the next item that needs to be served or serviced and then going about doing their job. And they're all sort of peers. They're, they're peers of each other. Well, one of the things that can happen unless the design of the system is, is exactly right is known as a deadlock. A deadlock can occur when there are resources in the server which only one thing at a time by virtue of the nature of the resource, only one thing at a time can access. For example, 
Say that you had something that just wanted to increment a variable. If, if it reads the contents of memory into a register and then increments the register and writes it back, it will increment that content in memory. But imagine that you, in a really busy system, you had multiple threads, multiple paths of execution, and two happened to be trying to increment that at the same time. The first one reads the value from memory into a register. And at that instant, a what's called a context switch occurs. That is, that thread has used up its time. And as we've talked about before, the way you, you know, the processors aren't, aren't constantly doing things or, or aren't, aren't actually doing multiple things at once. They're just jumping around, switching between multiple tasks or multiple threads very quickly. So conceptually, we see them as all happening in parallel. In fact, they're just, they're, they're time sharing. They're, they're swapping between them. So, so this first thread has read the contents of memory into a register and just run out of time. At that, at that instant, it's suspended and another thread is then allowed to run. Well, say that it wants to increment that value. It reads that value out of memory and increments it and writes it back and goes about its business. Well, when the thread that was first doing it is, is a reawakened, it continues. It's got the value in, in, that it read already, except now that value is obsolete because another thread, while it was sleeping, came along and incremented it. But it doesn't know that. It's got the value that was current when it was suspended. So it increments that and puts it back, essentially overwriting the value that the other thread wrote. So, so, so what happens is, in, in modern operating systems, there's a way to handle that. You're able to, you're able, a, a, a thread is able to declare that it needs exclusive access to something. And while it has exclusive access to an object, it could be memory, it could be as a structure, it could be anything, nothing else is able to, to acquire exclusive access. So that two threads might both say, I need exclusive access to this region of memory. And only one of them would, would have that granted because they both can't have it at the same time, which suspends that other thread while it's waiting to get its exclusive access. So the first thread does its work, um, returns the value, and then releases its exclusive access that allows somebody else that might have been waiting for it to run. But... It, you have to be very careful in, in, the, in the design of these systems because imagine that, that there were multiple things that a process or a thread needed to have all at once. And imagine that one thread might get a couple of them and then need to wait while it gets a couple others, whereas a different thread might have gotten some some of those other ones and it's waiting till it gets a different set the point is it's possible for two threads to each have something that the and another thread needs and neither of them to be able to move forward until they get them all and that's a classic deadlock 
in computer science. And uh, is, it, is it what they call a race condition? Um, a race condition is sort of it's a race condition is sort of what you would have if you didn't have this protection where where you where you still get like a an interthread competition, but um, it, it's sort of in, in 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 a different fashion. So so what has happened is that the guys at New Star um, found a deadlock condition in Bind, such that there's there's a there's a, a process called an incremental transfer where one DNS server is able to ask another DNS server for a, a bunch of data that uh, about a, a zone that it's managing, a zone being the technical term for like a, a, a domain, essentially. And it turns out that there is a short window of time where if you asked for an incremental transfer and made a query of the DNS server virtually simultaneously you can get that bind server, the entire DNS server, to lock. That is, it, wow. it causes, it, it is exactly this problem. It causes a deadlock. There's just a tiny little mistake that they made somewhere in their code such that if those two types of requests come in virtually at the, or, or being handled virtually at the same time, the entire server locks. It just, it, you have... It stops servicing any DNS requests. And so it is a classic, you know, golden goose for the bad guys who will, who would, I mean, because bind is the server everyone is using. This is the latest version, the latest version. Um, um, I mean, like, except for this very, very latest one, because this, this announcement just came out this morning is, you know, so, so the, 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 the previous release that was current can be locked up solid. I mean, you've got you've got to stop the server and restart the server in order to get DNS services going again. And so it's regarded as a as a an ex, as a high severity advisory for bind. Um, and um, one thing I, I, there was a fun little workaround. if you if you can't upgrade immediately to nine point seven point three, you but you can restart your server. You can restart it with a hyphen N space one on option on the command line. And that says run a single worker thread. So it literally that the hyphen N command ah. tells the server how many worker threads to, to run. And if you tell it only run one, then there can't be another one. For that, for the, there can't be two threads that are trying to access the same resource, so you can't have a resource contention problem, and it won't lock up. But it's it's only if you have more than one thread that in this version, in the in this prior to nine point seven point three, you can get a, a, a condition where where there's a deadlock and more and two threads are tr both trying to get something while they own some resources the other one needs and nobody can move forward. So interesting little bit of, of, of computer science that has sort of come back to I bite that. The, yeah. Bite yeah. the developers. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Well, but now this is temporary. You're not going to want to do N1 forever. No. And see, that's the problem is that the, this notion of a worker thread pool is state of the art maximum performance because 
what what can happen is a, a thread can be doing some work or making a request of, of a backend database or there are many things that can happen that causes a thread to stall like it, it's, it needs to wait for something so you'd like to have in a busy server many other things that could be done while one thread is waiting for some piece of work to complete other threads you know get control and they're able to move their own little bits of work forward so it's literally it's, it's like you have it's like having a, a team of workers who are who each go back to a queue, get their next job, and then wander off and start pursuing it. And, you know, someone might take a lunch break. Well, other workers are still going. So, so it's, a, it's a nice asynchronous model, which is very effective for, for getting maximum work out of a server. So, so a busy DNS server probably relies on having a, a, a pool of active workers and if you just said, sorry, everybody's fired except, you know, Joe, um, then, you know, Joe might not be able to do nearly as much work as, as the whole group. I had no idea that my, uh, my programs were having lunch breaks, but that's good to know. <laughs> Get back to work. So um, we did have some congressional testimony this last week from our friend Valerie Caproni uh, at the FBI. Uh, this is on this whole going, what they call their going dark problem, which is what the FBI has named the, their increasing concern that their wiretap, their, their practical ability to wiretap the Internet is, is slipping from them because more and more of what's on the net is encrypted. And, of course, you know, we've been promoting it, for example, in the wake of the release of Fire Sheep, we've been saying, wow, you know, you really want to be using SSL and HTTPS communications so that the bad guys can't be, you know, sniffing your traffic in, in wireless hotspots. And we celebrated when Facebook recently added that option to their configuration, allowing, finally, allowing, as they had said they were going to, a user to say, Force HTTPS secure connections wherever possible, which is, you know, a great move forward. Well, what's, what's good for us and, and our privacy, of course, is bad for the FBI and our other security and intelligence agencies that, that really feel that they need the ability to, to be able to see into the traffic on the Internet in order to protect us. So the, the problem is that... The FBI is still being very circumspect and cagey. I mean, even in the, I've been, I was impressed with the testimony. I was impressed that that the 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 people who are in in this panel seem to have enough of a grip on what's going on to to make this useful. Um, CNET, actually, this was widely covered: the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, CNET, and and others, because. You know, people are wondering what's going to happen with this legislation. Of course, I've been wondering because I'd like to do a VPN technology, which is explicitly for the sake of protecting us from bad guys. And 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 I'm uncomfortable with the idea that, you know, there might be some legislation coming downstream here that says, no, sorry, uh, we need backdoors in anything that uses crypto. So and, and of course, the. The problem is that that the FBI has still not articulated what it is that they want. 
Um, they've mentioned Skype, which concerns Uh-oh. me because Skype is point-to-point encryption. As we know, right now, Leo, you and I have a direct connection between us, between my machine and your machine. It was mediated by Skype. Skype did the presence management to show us each other and allow us to find each other. But but our connection is point-to-point and powerfully encrypted. Skype has a very good crypto technology and it and so th- there isn't any way for our dialogue to be eavesdropped on whether it's it's text chatting or <laughs> not that or anybody audio. Would, would really want to since yeah, we broadcast it live <laughs> but all right. But of course, you know, the bad guys are saying, "Hey, now we know, you know, how we could talk to each other without worrying about being overheard." So, um in in CNET's uh, in CNET's, CNET's article, they said FBI General Counsel Valerie Caproni will outline what the bureau was calling the "going dark" problem, meaning that police can be thwarted when conducting court authorized eavesdropping because internet companies aren't required to build backdoors in advance, or because technology doesn't permit it. Any solution, according to a copy of Caproni's prepared comments obtained by CNET, should include a way for police armed with wiretap orders to conduct surveillance of web-based email, social networking sites, and peer-to-peer communications technology. So so I, I've listened to the testimony. I've listened to the news reports afterwards, and it's still not clear what it is they want. We really didn't get much from it. The EFF weighed in. Um, they got some some documents that were just released from th- that they got under the Freedom of Information Act, uh, which which is still sort of murky. What I'm what I'm hoping is that is and, and from some of the things that have come out, it sort of sounds like this is reasonable that that the problem the FBI is addressing, for example, is that they'd like to be able to go to Facebook and Google with whom they have held talks already and 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 be able to serve them with a court order a, a, a wiretap surveillance order and then be able to receive a stream of some sort from the service providers on the use of certain individuals of their services and so what Facebook and Google are saying at the moment is we don't have that built in to our system. You know, yes, we could do it because, you know, we're the database. We're one end of this connection. And so, yeah, that information is here, but we don't have the technology to, like, tap ourselves. We haven't ever needed to, and frankly, we haven't wanted to. And so what what... It sounds like that it's from thing, again reading sort of reading between the lines. It, it, there has been comments made that like, well, we realize that when individuals encrypt their own communications to, you know, for their own sake, that's something we can't get to. But when services like Facebook and Google are doing so, well, we need that, and it's reasonable for us to have it. So. It sounds like what 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 they're trying to get is some legislation which would require anyone 
who is like a receiver, like a, I don't even know how they would describe it legislatively, but a, you know, a public entity like a carrier, a a carrier, um, um, well, but sort of an endpoint. See, that's that's true. Yeah. So they're not just a carrier, are they? Yeah. Yeah, It's got, it's so an ISP can't decrypt, you know, VPN traffic. They just don't have the key. Right. And so, but, but, you know, someone at either end does. Right. The endpoint does. Yeah. Yeah. The endpoint does. And so, so, um, there, there was, there was a comment made that, that in some cases, the, our, our law enforcement would, would simply have to find other means, meaning that they are recognizing there are some things they just can't get. And it, and from conversations with Google and Facebook, and I mean, just the, the, we understand the way the technology works, there are things they could get except that there isn't the facility for it now. And so it sounds like what the FBI would like to have is some legislation to force entities like Facebook and Google to be able to respond to a, a court-ordered wiretap when it's provided. At the moment, they, they, they could say, sorry, we'd like to help you, but our system doesn't do that. And so there would be legislation that would force their systems to be, to have that added to it. And I think that's where we're going to end up, which, Mm. you know, um, is, um, uh, (laughs) I hope it doesn't get abused, I guess is all I'm saying. You know, I, uh, I was reading an article, I guess we talked about this before I left about, uh, these pen register, uh, warrants which are not do not need to be disclosed and they're not as strongly regulated because because it's presumed well there's no content being revealed it's just the fact of communication the subject of the email your gps location and and uh you know these are being heavily used i got some uh, emails after talking about it on the radio show from uh, law enforcement people said oh yeah we use those all the time in canada you know in the u.s Phone companies are allowed to profit from these requests. They charge the, uh-huh. the police, you know, a few bucks. In fact, Sprint has a web portal for law enforcement. You want to know where uh, somebody is? No problem. You don't need a warrant. Just say you're, you know, law enforcement. Give us the person's phone number and uh, we'll tell you right now. In fact, we'll tell you forever where they are. It just costs you a couple of bucks. Yep. In Canada, it's illegal to do that. But they, so they have to give it to you free. <laughs> they still do it, but they just can't charge for it. It's, you know, so it, it really does feel like pri- our privacy is being eroded very rapidly. Well, speaking of which, um, we have uh, a, a couple more little bits that I wanted to share with our, uh, with our listeners. And you're exactly right. This, uh, the COICA um, is, is the acronym for Combating Online Infringements oh, and Counterfeits God. Act. Oh, I hate this. I know. And it's back. Um, it's back. It was, it's back. It was, or will be shortly. It was introduced last year, but the Senate did not take it up. And it's being reintroduced with somewhat better controls to limit what the DOJ can do with it. Um, and one significant restriction, which is being added to the legislation, which is, you know, trying to be reborn here, would be that domain seizures could only be used when less restrictive methods have failed. And so, so basically, this is what we've talked about a couple times, Leo, right. where... It's kind we're, of a preemptive thing. Yes, yeah. well, and, and where, where basically the, you know, the MPAA, the RIAA, the, 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 the large, powerful lobbying content owners are saying, you know, we need ways of 
of getting counterfeiting websites shut down. We we just want them gone. We and we so, don't need that, you know, that due process thing. That's that's so old fashioned. Well, and due process, exactly. You're right, Leo. Due process is the problem. Uh, Senator Sel- Sheldon Whitehouse, who's a uh, a Democrat in Rhode Island, he, he he was quoted saying, "I contend that America is on the losing end of the largest transfer of wealth through theft and privacy in the history of mankind. We're doing virtually nothing about it." I well, love I it say- how these guys are are so hyperbolic. <laughs> oh my God, the record in movie and TV industry. How will they survive? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, since, since late November, the U.S. Department of Homeland Securities the, the, is the, the, the division in there. Uh, it's called ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Uh, that's the, the group that does this. They've obtained court orders to shut down more than 100 websites for alleged copyright infringement, even without this new authority, which the, CO, the COICA would give them. Um, and then just Monday of this week, they announced they had seized the domain names of 18 websites which were offering counterfeit jewelry, handbags, perfume, and other products. And it, this is something, though, that seems to have some global sweep to it also because Spain also just passed a similar law. Um, they had tried to pass it also last year and failed. It was voted down. They then added a panel to oversee the shutdowns, basically an oversight committee. And with that addition, Spain was able to get the, the, the law passed. So on that note, another bit of news is that one of these ICF, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, takedowns completely backfired. Um, they were attempting, this is also last week, they were attempting to seize 10 web domains suspected of storing, displaying, or peddling child pornography. Um, Unfortunately, in the process, they also seized a site called MOOO.com, which is a, um, it's the most popular domain at afraid.org, which is run by the DNS provider FreeDNS. There are 84,000 subdomain websites hung off of MOOO.com, and they were all taken down. And so presumably this is some sort of hosting company or uh, web exactly. hosting. Exactly. It's a huge web hosting company. More than 84,000 companies and individuals had had websites hosted there and they were not only taken offline but instead visitors to any of those 84,000 plus websites were taken to a page with a banner that said this domain that shows the logos of the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice the banner says this domain name has been seized by ICE, Homeland Security Investigations, pursuant to a seizure warrant under the authority of Title 17 USC 2254, advertisement, distribution, transportation, receipt, and possession 
of child pornography constitute federal crimes. Talk about killing a mosquito with a cannon. So all of these sites were accused of trafficking in child pornography. And it took 48 hours for this mistake to be corrected at the DNS level because essentially the the registrar for MOOO.com was forced to change the, the root level registration to point to a, an, a server that presented this notice. So all the subdomains that were hung off of MOOO.com received this notice. And due to internet DNS caching, it took a total of about three more days after that for this all to get itself sorted out. And one blogger uh, who was host, who had this happen to his site, who was obviously completely innocent of any of this, uh, um, the ICE is being overseen by a guy named John Morton. And so he blogged, Mr. Morton, with all due respect, and then we'll blank out this expletive, but it, it was a word. <laughs> F you. Uh-huh. In the it's, words it's of CeeLo. <laughs> something off. Uh-huh. He says, get out of my internet. You'd get no argument from me that there are truly distasteful and illegal things on the internet. That's true of any society. But there are also proper ways to deal with these problems. Pulling a total domain, sweeping up innocent people along the way, feeling that you don't have to comply with due process of law, and indicating that you don't give a damn is wrong. It's not as wrong as child pornography or counterfeiting, but it's still wrong. As a taxpayer, I feel you're wasting my money and denying my ability to use the Internet to host a server containing useful, legal, and hopefully interesting content over a readily known alias. That's to say nothing of any damage done to my name or reputation by this idiotic law. So, uh, whoops. Well, yeah, no kidding. Whoops. Yeah. Yeah. So, and apparently what happened was there was one of those 84,000 subdomains of MOOO.com was the actual bad guy target. But, again, here's the problem is, you know, Internet technology is complicated. And it's important for the people who are going to be given this kind of power to, to, I mean, to be technically competent, to understand that they want to, they want to remove a subdomain that is being, that, where the subdomains are all hosted off of a primary root domain. So, I mean, you know, we understand this would have been, you know, who knows what, uh, fancy purses for you, dot com. That might have been a piracy site, but that's a subdomain off of MOOO.com. Unfortunately, the DOJ killed the the root domain that 83,999 other good sites were pointed to and aimed them at this, you know, disturbing page so that anyone going to any of those sites would have seen, seen you know, something accusing them of child pornography. So, yeah, um, clearly this was a mistake. I, I read some nonsense on the net about this being deliberate. It's like, well, there's no, 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 well, no, no way this was deliberate. That's crazy. But it, it, it does say that 
that those who are doing this don't know what the un- hell they're doing. Yes, <laughs> you know that's the, that's what it says. They're going around stomping at the registry level, stomping on root domains. But in the case that that that, that like exactly like this, this is a hosting site where you've got a huge number of subdomains, each containing separate websites. You just can't go kill. I mean, it'd be like them killing off .com. You know, what would happen if they killed off .com? Well, <laughs> it's clear that we would all yeah. cease to exist. Not me. You know, so not me. I'm twit.tv. You're .tv. <laughs> Leo would be the beacon. <laughs> I'm the last Which guy standing. <laughs> I don't. I have leoville.com. It's the only .com I have. Almost yeah. everything else is a dot .something else. I'd just be on the roof waving. <laughs> hey, uh, <laughs> hey, hey, over here. They cut off the internet. And then in the last little bit of sad news, well, I don't know if this is sad news. Uh, uh, you may have known, I don't know how how anchored you were to U.S. politics during your, your cruise, Leo. But um, Actually, I, missed, I was watching Egypt, but I missed what happened here. What happened? Uh, what happened here was that early, early at 4.30 a.m. this last Sunday morning, the, the House of Representatives passed their H.R. 1 bill, which is very controversial. This is where they're... They're taking $61 billion off of our current budget and in order um, to, to uh, get us to September. And um, we have until March 4th, which in, 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 unless this ends up getting through the Senate and not vetoed by our president, then the federal government shuts down on the, I guess, at the end of the day of business on Friday, March 4th. One of the things that they stripped Snuck out into it stripped out a lot. I mean, yeah. Planned Parenthood lost its funding, and and the EPA lost its ability to enforce uh, uh, greenhouse gas emission controls, and all kinds of things have been have been removed. Regardless of how you feel about it politically, one thing also that got removed was that the FCC lost their ability to spend any money on implementing their net neutrality rules which they had proposed last year. Now, it's still not clear whether the FCC has the legal authority, and, and Verizon has challenged them, is, is challenging them in court, whether they have the legal authority to enforce net neutrality. But in any event, they don't have the budget any longer, or they may not if this stays in and what finally gets passed. And you know, there are lots of vulnerable prod, uh, programs that I think even if there's some compromise that's reached, um, that backs off of the $61 billion that's being cut. Things like this, I imagine, you know, I mean, I, I won't miss it. We, we, we need some, as we've talked often, we need some sort of, of, of legal precedent for, for how, the, how Internet carriers can regulate traffic and what, what the limits of them doing so are. Um, so, you know, we're just sort of stumbling forward trying to figure out what we should do. You know, it's really, I mean, if you know how to manipulate the government <laughs> and the legislative process, there's not much you can't do. I mean, just no, tie, tie it to a bill that will shut the com- country down if it's not signed into law. And what can anyone do? Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Now, you did miss a fantastic episode, unfortunately. Oh, shoot. Uh, two weeks ago. Yeah. We discussed something called Bitcoin. Oh, I'm familiar with Bitcoin. Oh, I actually good. run a little Bitcoin server. 
Um, Nobody ever well, gives I, me any Bitcoin, but at least I, you know, I earn it myself with my. Well, we we completely covered all of the technology of Bitcoin. Isn't it interesting? I mean, I don't know if it's going to take off, but I think it's, it's very interesting. Fantastic! Yeah. I'm I'm a fan, and uh, we 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 really had fun a uh, week before last talking about it, and then last week was the Q and A that had about half of its questions follow ups. Um, it, it, what I want to tell our listeners was that that I made the comment last week that when I'd had my little Bitcoin server running, that, of course, you know, nothing had happened. Yeah. Well, I turned the screen on <laughs> and I found out I had won 50 Bitcoins. Right. They do uh, that to keep you going. Every well, once no. In a while. Well, well, actually, the, 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 the chances are about th- that I that everybody doing it would as as a function of the amount of processing power in the network uh it would take about a year and wow. i was on valentine's day at Aww. 7 at 7:32 p.m. that uh that my com- my computer and fi- fact frankly it's that i7 875 and it's only because i built that little powerhouse right. in order for us to play you got a lot of threads there baby that i've got exactly i'm able to do 48 Hundred caches per second, wow. and so just ba- I mean, it's, it's just pure luck, basically. But I was out there, you know, pitching my hashes out onto the peer-to-peer network along with all the other Bitcoin servers that, or, or uh, yeah, bi- yeah, on 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 the peer-to-peer network that were trying to solve this puzzle, and I got one first. And we should point out that th- this is completely automated; that it's not somebody rewarding you for covering Bitcoin. Nobody pushed a button at Bitcoin headquarters or anything. Well, no one, there is no all, Bitcoin headquarters. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's anonymous too. Right. There's no way that and they it's not know. like they, right. they thanked me for covering the podcast. I mean, for right. on the podcast for for covering the technology, they have no idea it was me. It was just p- pure. You know, re- blind luck that on Valentine's Day, uh, my my machine happened to be first in Yay. solving this hash puzzle, and I got fifty bitcoins. Now, the the real issue is what the hell can you do with them? Well, yes, it's just fun. <laughs> you can give I mean, them to me. I'll there, take them. <laughs> there, there are there are there are now um, the the current trading rate is about one bitcoin per dollar, so I can cash those in. There so are people, people are actually who, there is a market. Yes, yes, oh, you can buy you can buy services and goods. The EFF accepts donations in, in Bitcoin. Bitcoin. Oh, that's in Bitcoin. Because I've so been giving them uh, American dollars. I better start giving them Bitcoin instead. Oh, Leo, that's so old. <laughs> so old fashioned dollars. No, we want virtual money. We want cryptocurrency. I, I just love the idea. It is. It is. It's just a great idea. It's pure anarchy. Yeah. It's. It's. You know. And in fact, you know, some of the questions that we talked about last week, where people were worried about, well. Can't you use this for money laundering? It's like absolutely, uh-huh. and you can also use it for privacy if you'd like it. Well, you know, I mean, you know it's double edged. Unfortunately, all technology. How would you money launder with it? Well, you, you could e- you could easily take currency in any denomination and convert it to bitcoins, send it to somebody else. Oh, that's why there's a market. And have them convert yeah. it back out. I couldn't figure out why somebody would give you actual money for bitcoins, and now I understand why. <laughs> uh, you know, well, I, I set it up as experiment, and uh, and uh, I thought about using it uh, for do- somebody wanted to donate bitcoins, so I set up the server and all that. And um, maybe we'll take bitcoin donations. I just I don't know what you do with it. 
<laughs> it's just kind of interesting. It's, but it's I'm just it's just sort of a trophy, you know. I got fifty from yeah. having my machine on the net, and that's yeah. kind of cool. And people have asked, would you be willing to sell your software, Steve, in return for bitcoins? And I said, uh, well, I'm not set up to do that. If but could, next time, next time I go in to my e-commerce system, I'll think about if maybe I could eat bitcoins. I might <laughs> pay the rent with bitcoins. I might. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I have to say, I'm glad to hear, though, that you vetted it and went through the process that they're doing. And, and it's... Uh, oh, Leo, it's so cool. Yeah. The I'll have to listen to that episode. Oh, they just nailed it. I am so impressed with the way the system works. The fact that everything anyone's been able to come up with was was incorporated into the solution. I mean, it's one of those things where it it really works. And it's self-sustaining and it's taking off. And, you know, the value of Bitcoins has been going up. And in fact, we apparently created a small denial of service. That is the the, the podcast discussing Bitcoin.org took it off the net for a while. There was a notice up saying that due to, you know, overuse of the server, we really? were it was, wow. it was like a redirection somewhere else. Wow, so interesting. we may have just used up their bandwidth. <laughs> um, also, last week or the week before, we, we had talked, I think, about how Symantec had purchased um, VeriSign's ID system, the VIP. And uh, I discussed, I think it was also last week, that the news that the net, the forthcoming chipset from Intel, the Sandy Bridge chipset, would incorporate VIP technology in it, which is very cool. So so that, you know, the, the little football that we've talked about and the, the e-ink credit card and all that, that the, the use the six-digit code, Intel has built that technology into the hardware. So, um, so you'll be, so basically your laptop or your desktop, whatever it is that uses one of the Sandy Bridge chipsets that, that contains this, will itself be an authentication token. It'll, it has the crypto stuff in it, and once you register that for in the, in this case with VeriSign or Vasco or one one of the providers, then you'll be able to use it for authentication, just like you do the football or the credit card. Uh, the reason I bring this up again is that it, that I was assuming that I was like wondering, okay, we were also also discussing Google's move to to multi-factor authentication, and I was I was lamenting the fact that Google had not among their many things they do support, like uh, a cell phone can call you and read you a code that you then type in, or you can get it via text and 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 so forth. You know, Google has basically unveiled multi-factor authentication for their stuff now. Um, I was wishing that they, I said, yes, but they don't support, darn it, VeriSign's VIP system. And then I, I thought, well, maybe it's because it's not free. You know, maybe mm -hmm, people mm -hmm. who need to, who use it, we know we end users don't, but maybe the sites that are, that are using it for authentication do have to pay for it. Like for example, PayPal and eBay are paying Symantec something for the use. And I did get email from um, someone at Symantec who kept himself anonymous, but said, Steve, you were right. It, it is a service. Ah which is paid for by the websites that use it for their authentication. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. Well, that, that explains that, that. That explains it and you know and and also makes the it makes the economic model make sense too because as I had mentioned before, 
uh, I now have the VeriSign Symantec VIP applet on my BlackBerry. I know that it's available both for Android and for the iPhone as well. So it's no longer necessary that for you to have a physical football or even a credit card. If you've got your phone with you, I know, you I could, love that. I yes, love you that. can now authenticate in there. That's so much better, really, because everybody always has their phone. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's the perfect solution. Yeah. And I do have a neat note from a listener of ours, Philip Garrett, who wrote, uh, in my quest to always find new Spinrite stories, Spinrite saves a PS3. He said, of course, the PS3 has been in the news a lot lately because of the, the backdoor stuff that's been happening. Right. You know, it's uh, all of the, the, the hacking of the PS3. He said, sir or madam, my PS3, <laughs> my PS3 Slim started acting flaky during a game add-on download on Sunday, February 20th, 2011. The interface was sluggish and would momentarily freeze up. On Monday evening, when I arrived home from work, I attempted to turn the PS3 on and it would only perform an incomplete boot before hanging up and freezing solid. I have two years worth of game saved files and other moderately important information on that hard drive. So it was important to me to repair it. I had a hunch that the problem was with the PS3's hard drive. I removed the hard drive from the unit and slaved it to my main machine. I inserted my Spinrite disk and rebooted the machine. Spinrite booted right up, and I was able to select the slaved drive and run Spinrite at level 2. After 30 minutes, Spinrite completed its work and showed one unrecoverable sector. I crossed my fingers, hoping that the drive had been repaired enough to properly boot. I placed the drive back into the PS3. The PS3 boots right up. I was able to immediately perform a backup of the data onto an external drive. Good man. (coughs) No longer having any faith in the original drive, (laughs) I jumped into my truck and left for fries. I was able to purchase and install a new drive. After formatting and reinstalling the OS, I was able to restore my backed up data. My PS3 is back to running like a dream. Thank you for reminding us on Security Now that Spinrite is not just for computer hard drives. I can now say from experience that it works on a PS3 drive. Thank you again for a great product. Philip Garrett in Fishers, Indiana. And thank you, Philip, for sharing that. That's great news. All right. In a moment, we talk about how proxies work and how proxied surfing can get you uh, out of the country, even if your government doesn't want you to have access to the uh-huh. internet. But before we do that, I would like to talk a little bit about our long, longest-lasting sponsor, not just on this show, but on all of our shows, our original Twit sponsor, still going strong, and we love them. It's a Starro Corporation, makers of the greatest Starro security gateway. If your small or medium business uh, needs a superior protection on its network from spam, viruses, hackers... If you need complete VPN capabilities, if you need intrusion protection, content filtering, if you want an industrial-strength, state-of-the-art firewall, and you'd like to get all that rolled into one easy-to-use, high-performance appliance, then, ladies and gentlemen, I've got your product right here. It's called a, <laughs> the Astara Security. Yes, the Astara Security Gateway. Sometime we should do... A uh, one of those uh, infomercial style or you know carnival barker style ads. <laughs> right. It slices, it dices, ladies and gentlemen. VPN through S 
SL, VPN. Yeah, proxy. Oh, proxy. It does it all. <laughs> you can get one in your uh, business uh, free demo unit by calling them 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. Or if you're outside the U.S., just visit astaro.com, A-S-T-A-R-O.com. This thing is bulletproof. You can tell just when you get it. I mean, it's made of solid, thick steel. It's, You know, it's not much bigger than a router, but, boy, it does everything. And you know what I like about it? They use the, the, the kind of the best in class in both open and uh, commercial software. So you really, there's no compromise here. Uh, it supports S-MIME and OpenPGP for, for automatic encryption, decryption, and signing of email, completely transparent to your users. You can have defined user groups so not all email is signed or, ju- you know, just some email. Um, inbound email automatically decrypted uh, and of course verified and of course because most viruses now come through email it's got two antiviruses for email checking everything that comes in and an antivirus for the web because that's of course the other very common vector actually I shouldn't say most anymore I bet you most viruses now are on websites but either way you're covered uh, and it includes the Astaro up to date which is a great way for keeping this all up to date automatically. 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O, or 877-427-8276. And by the way, home users, they continue to offer that free use of the home user package. Uh, In fact, with the new V7, updates are free of charge. You can get an appliance at uh, VMware. Uh, they've got a great Astaro appliance to try it out or build it yourself, put it on your own beige box, and have all of the functionality of uh, Astaro's Security Gateway at home as well. It's just a great company with great stuff, and I want you to try it out. Astaro.com or call 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. Look, someone's calling right now. All right, time to talk proxies. Steve Gibson. So normally when we use our web browser, we we put the URL we want of, of a site we want to visit, um, into the address bar. And as we know, the browser looks up the IP address of that web site, that, that domain, and, and then attempts to initiate a, a TCP connection to that IP on, by default, port 80, if we're just using HTTPS, or port 443, if we're using H, um, if we're just using HTTP, not HTTPS, or 443, if we are using HTTPS, so so it the the browser connects directly to there um, over that uh, to its remote IP and that standard you know web surfing port 80, and and then if it's able to get a connection, uh, exchanges its request with the remote server and, uh, and and obtains whatever resource you know web page or whatever it's it's asking for now there are some cases where it's useful to add a layer of complexity to that the a a famous instance which is which most users are not aware of is when an isp is proxying connections for on behalf of their own customers in that case the web browser thinks that it is connecting 
to a, a remote server. But in fact, that connection is intercepted by the ISP's caching proxy, which looks at the request to see whether it might have what the browser is asking for in its own cache. In the case of very popular sites like Amazon, for example, that, that are covered with, with you know, uh, menuing uh, images, just all kinds of, of stuff all over the page, it's very likely that that same stuff is being delivered to all of the customers um, of the same ISP. And so... Um, it's, it's so if this if this intercepting proxy saves those when it retrieves them for one customer, it can save having to retrieve them for someone else. So that saves the ISP bandwidth going out to the internet, and it arguably improves the customer's experience because they're going to get their their own page loaded much faster because they're, they're they're not their browser is not actually having to go out onto the internet to get what you know like all of the extra stuff on a page so so this notion of a of a local caching proxy which is transparent is is one which users don't normally see there are other instances though where the the proxy is either automatically configured or or manually configured to serve some so a non-transparent some specific purpose um, for example, you might have a, a a corporation which wants to control the exterior or external use of the internet by its employees. So, in such an in such an organization, the organization's firewall would block outgoing connections to port eighty and port four four three, so that so that all of the web services that exist outside of that corporate network are inaccessible. You know, those servers are serving their their content on port 80. But if your web browser is unable to, to send internet traffic out destined towards port 80, it can't get on those websites. Um, another instance might be uh, schools or universities or corporations that don't want to do a wholesale blanketing, but for example, they want to keep their employees from spending all day on Facebook or or logged into Twitter. So so they're they're blocking specific websites at specific locations. And of course, the much larger instance is is you know a, um, a country where there's a government like China that that sort of officially intends to censor those websites that its citizens are able to access, in which case they've got, you know, industry strength firewall technology running at their, at, at their national borders, which are preventing anyone from when, 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 a, when a, you know, Google turns up search results for links they click, if those are on sites which are proscribed, they're not able to connect to those servers. So, so, a proxy is provides a means for providing sort of a middleman, and, and which is exactly what it is, um, in the connection between a user's browser and the server they're trying to access. In the corporate access case, you might have to log on to the proxy server 
in order to gain access outwards. So you, so you have to authenticate yourself, you essentially declare your interest in going to the outside world, and that's, that, that gives the corporation a means for controlling your access. Um, it might be monitored. It might be logged. They still might be filtering where you can go even, even when you log into the proxy server in order to get out. But the, the concept of proxying from a technology standpoint is one where um, if the proxy is configured in your browser, that is, the, the, your browser has been explicitly told that it will not be able to get directly out onto the internet. It has to use a proxy. Then no matter what address you put into the address bar, the browser connects somewhere else. It doesn't look up the IP address of the domain you put in the address bar and attempt a connection. Instead, those settings which are in its configuration dialogues, those take precedent. And, and so, for example, there will be an IP address or maybe a domain name and even a port number for, for, uh, that, that essentially completely overrides the connection level part of this dialogue. So, so the, the, the browser always goes to a specific IP and, and port number. That's what it connects to. And if it is authenticated, if authentication is required, then what happens is it, it makes its query just as it normally would, as if it had normally connected to the actual destina destination IP. However, it's connected instead to this proxy server, which the, and the reason the name proxy is that this, this server then acts on behalf of the web browser outwards toward the internet. That is, it proxies its request and makes it on behalf of the web browser. So what this allows is it, it, it allows um, control to be applied both outgoing and incoming. Another example, uh, when I was poking around looking for, for some good examples, I ran across the UC, uh, uh, UCSD, UC San Diego. Um, they have instructions on their website for students of the university who are outside of their, of their university network. And they talk about being on AOL or being on Cox or being, you know, some other carrier, but who's, who want access to, um, the, for example, the, the university library system, which is on their internal network. UCSD has many servers running inside its network, which are not available to the general public out on the internet externally. So if, if their students are working, for example, off campus um, on Cox, that, that, that's not within the university network, yet the students may need access to those resources. So, so students can configure their browser putting in webproxy.ucsd.edu as the as the domain where the proxy is and then the web proxy port in the case of UCSD and this is just arbitrary is 3128 so so a web browser running outside of UCSD when attempting to connect to resources inside UCSD 
is able to is able to send to essentially redirect all of its traffic to to the IP of of that domain name webproxy.ucsd.edu and not connect to port 80 connect to, instead to 3128 and and then then they have to authenticate they you know they've got to be a student w- w- with a UCSD login credentials they they will be um, when, when they try to make any connection there, sort of, sort of like when you um, use um, a, a hotspot that isn't completely open, where, where you've got to jump through some hoops first in order to, to log into it in order to get access. The same thing happens here, where instead of trying to get out, you're essentially trying to get in to, to an internal network that's protected that way. So, so the idea is that if you're authenticated, then that then the server that that is is answering and fielding those requests from the outside is able to to turn around and send that request into the interior network. Now the problem with the the, the problem with this sort of a static proxying is that the, your browser sends all traffic there, not just traffic bound for for service uh, ser- servers and services that are inside UCSD, so there's there's another fancier way this can be done, and that's with a proxying script. If you if you look in your web browser, whether it's IE or Firefox or any of the others, there's there's normally a number of options for for configuring your browser proxy, and in fact, one of the one of the my favorite tips. For people using IE, whenever I go to someone's house and, you know, they've got some problem and say, hey, can you take a look at my computer? If I fire up Internet Explorer and it takes a long time, I go, oh, and, and immediately go in <laughs> to their, their, their Internet options and turn off under land settings, automatically detect settings. This is, this is a really annoying thing that Microsoft has always done with Internet Explorer that delays it startup every time you launch it. So I know so uh, two. <laughs> uh, the security uh. so the security now get on the net faster tip of the week. If you're using Internet Explorer is under Internet Options, Connections, Land Settings, it'll you'll find that unless you've turned it off, it'll say automatically detect settings. Now Firefox has the same default but for whatever reason, I've never felt the same delay. When I, when I went to look at, at my Firefox configuration, I found it too had it turned on and I immediately turned it off. Maybe Firefox is a little less slow in handling it or maybe it does a better job or does these things in parallel. Because what this automatic detection does, it's a, it's a sort of a kludge protocol which allows your browser knowing nothing at all about a network to determine whether it needs to use a proxy in order to get out onto the internet. So this was one of those things where Microsoft decided, okay, even though this is probably only useful for 0.2% of the users of Internet Explorer, we don't want to get phone calls or customer service problems yeah. from those 02 we don't want so to turn it off because, right. yeah. So we're turning it on for everyone, even though now 98.8% of the, 
of the internet users in the galaxy are all going to go, oh, oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're right, because actually that's what I do too. Because you it know, a, it's checking to see if there's a proxy. Oh, and it's a slow process. It is. It, the first thing it does is it does a DHCP broadcast. We've talked about DHCP, Dynamic Host Configuration Protocol, which is the way our computers find their IP address and subnet and so forth. Our routers are DHCP servers. So it's a, it's a neat technology for allowing systems to configure themselves. But And I have mentioned also that DHCP can supply many other kinds of information. You could get time of day from it if it was configured to offer it, and all kinds of other information. Well, one of the kinds of information you can also get from DHCP, in addition to give me an IP address and my gateway IP and my subnet mask, is, is there a proxy here, a web proxy that I should use? So uh, you make a DHCP request of, of option type 252, and, and if that is supported on your DHCP server, it'll respond. Now, when, when the browser makes the request, it sends it off and waits for a reply. And if it doesn't get one, it sends it again a couple times because, you know, it might have lost the first response or, or the reply. If that doesn't work, then it falls back to, come to come something called SLP, which is Service Location Protocol, that almost no one has, but somewhere someone had it once. So Microsoft says, well, maybe they still do. And we wait for that. So we wait for that, too. This is the curse of Microsoft is this backward <sighs> legacy for anything anybody ever did. Yes. And then even though almost no one has this, they say, well, not. let's check DNS. So, you know, have you noticed, Leo, that I've always wondered why my Windows wants to know what what it's it's what like the computer's own domain name right. is. It's like, well, my computer doesn't have a domain name. It may not it's just like, be DNS. It might be, uh, you know, there's WINS and there's other systems, a corporation. It's a business thing, right? True. And so, so what happens is if your computer has a domain name associated with it, and, I mean, and there, are, there are corporations where, for example, when you get online, you, you know, your machine will have a name. And yeah. so it'll be your machine name dot, you know, Jimmy's Hotcakes Corporation dot <laughs> com. They um, definitely use Windows. I'm sure they do. <laughs> um, and so what happens is this: if nothing else has responded yet, um, then IE puts a um, the the prefix WPAD, um, uh, which stands for Web Proxy Auto Discovery. It puts that in front of your machine name. So it would be, you know, wpad.mymachine.jimmyshotcakes or whatever I said, .com. And it does an address record lookup for that. And of course, if it doesn't respond, it tries it a few more times until it's sure that it's not there. Then it does an, an SRV record lookup and waits for that to give up. Then it tries a TXT record lookup and waits for that to give up. And if that doesn't work, then it shortens the path by removing your machine name and just tries wpad.jimmyshotcakes.com and does all of that again. Oy. So this is why people are going all over the place. Yeah. Is while waiting for IE to get going, this is what's happening. So by all means, if if you've ever noticed this, or even if not, 
Go to, and you're using Internet Explorer, which seems to be the slowest of doing this for some reason. Internet options, connections, land settings, automatically detect settings, turn it off. I mean, unless you need that. Some of some people probably do. Oh, if you're in, in a which, corporation, you probably should not do this. Well, and in a corporation, it'll it won't slow you down because right, it's your machine find something. will exactly your machine will make a broadcast. Say, hey, here I am. Do I need a proxy? Somebody somewhere will say, you oh, sure yeah. do. Oh yeah, and here, here it, is. it is. Yeah, we used to. I mean, I remember ZDTV. It was set up that way, uh, Tech TV, and uh, that made sense in a corporate environment. But at home, it makes no sense at all. No sense at all, and all of us have it on, and we're all going and waiting for IE to get going, and a little less so for Firefox. Mine's turned off now for the first time with Firefox, so I can't wait to like restart it and <laughs> see if see if it's faster. I wonder if, if Chrome is doing that. I guess everybody has to do it, right? I, I if if they don't want to risk compatibility, I sort of thought Firefox might have it off by default, but I guess maybe everybody has to have it on, and so we're all losing some time in this. You know, because some people somewhere have to have it on, all the rest of us, unless we've gone in and turned it off, are waiting for that to, you know, expire. So, as I was saying, in, in for a user who, for example, needs to get to um, proxied services, for example, we'll take the, the, the UCSD student example. If they configure, manually configure their browser to use a web proxy then everything it does it sends there which is which is a problem so what that would force the user to do is to be going in and turning this on and off all the time that is if they don't if they want to go out and surf the net just go to facebook and twitter and and google and everything else they have to turn they have to turn off the proxying which is you know a few dialogues down to get to um, in order for their web browser just to make direct connections out to the sites they want to visit. Then they got to turn it back on again when they want to go back into the UCSD network. Not surprisingly, there are some utilities which have been created, uh, one called G-Proxy, which makes switching the proxying on and off much easier. It gives you a, a nice user interface for, for doing this, and there are a bunch of those. But there's one slightly cleverer solution and that is if you look at this proxying dialogue in your web browser you'll see there's the the solicitation for a script that you can give it now the bad news is it's got the word script in it mm -hmm. and we know how i feel about scripting <laughs> it actually is javascript uh -oh. and so uh in the case again of ucsd if you if there's a file there, webproxy.ucsd.edu slash proxy.pl. And I don't know why they used PL. Unfortunately, that's a common extension for Perl uh, scripts, and this is not a Perl script. What? Uh, it's it's JavaScript. Huh. Um, but if anyone's curious, you can you, you can put webproxy.ucsd.edu slash proxy.pl into your browser's address bar. It will probably pop up and say, would you like to save the file? You could save it and then look at it. And what you'll see is a very sophisticated JavaScript program which analyzes, which your, brow, which your web browser can now pick up from, if you are a UCSD student, pick up from UCSD and it, it 
with very fine-grained detail, tells it which URLs and servers and services and domains and all kinds of stuff, IP addresses. Um, I mean, they're, they're, you have all the power of JavaScript, essentially, in, in this filter so that every URL your browser is given is passed through this function. That JavaScript file defines a function called find proxy for URL. And it's given the arguments of the URL and the host machine name. And, and, and it returns essentially a proxy string that tells the browser how to connect. And so the beauty of using that is that if you're, if you're, you can still go to Facebook and Twitter and Google anywhere you, you know, anywhere you may want to, because that script will say, nope, we don't handle those domains, go direct. And so your, your web browser will make a direct IP connection there. And if it is a domain inside UCSD, that script, when it's given that, will say, oh, yeah, here's, you know, here's the settings you want to use. It, make your connection to this machine at this port number. And so it makes that uh, process of sort of being in and out of, of a proxy very nice. And potentially you could alter the script yourself if, you, if there were different proxy servers you wanted to use for, 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 for different remote sites. So it is a, it's a powerful capability. Unfortunately, it's also JavaScript. And there have been, as one would imagine, exploits where the web proxy auto-configuring um, uh, script has been hacked by people because it think of the power it gives you. Basically, it if that were maliciously altered, then your browser is going to blindly follow that script and connect to whatever machine and IP and port this script has told it to, and that's completely transparent to the user. You put in the URL, you don't see where you've really gone. Your browser, you know, connected off to Russia, unfortunately, instead of, you know, to Palo Alto and Google. Um, but, you know, because it got a malicious, uh, uh, it's called a PAC, a proxy auto configuration JavaScript file um, that has happened in the past. So it's just something to be aware of. But um, still, very cool um, capability, which has you know, always been in our browsers, which um, most of us are just sort of unaware of. Now, the final type of proxying, oh, there's, there's two more. Um, the other type of proxying that many security conscious users um, have used in the past is a local proxy, where instead of this being a remote server that you connect to, you actually run a server in your computer. Um, famously, Proxometron has been used for years. And more recently, there's something called Privoxy, which used to be called the Internet Junk Buster. Um, but it, but um, they ended up folding up shop and this thing went uh, open source. And it's, it's Privoxy, P-R-I-V-O-X-Y.org is the home of the Privoxy proxy. This is multi-platform, open source. It's something you run in your computer, which, which essentially sets up a server which provides local services. You then configure your browser using the same proxy dialogue, which you may have now found if you've been listening to the podcast so far because you wanted to not 
wait for IE to start up slow, so slowly every time. Um, so you you configure your browser to use this server running in your own computer. And the, 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 the reason you do this, the power of it is that it makes a very powerful filter. This is what Proxomatron had, had been used for for years. Proxomatron is still around and as far as I know is being supported and is, is well used by people who've gotten into the nuts and bolts of taking responsibility for their own security and privacy. One of the things, for example, that people like to do is not uh, declare publicly what their user agent is. The user agent is the header which a browser sends out uh, to talk about what make and model and version. And increasingly, it also has a long string of stuff of like if you've got .NET installed in Windows, which is becoming more and more unavoidable these days, there's all kinds of version information. But when we talked about... Um, the service that the EFF runs for uh, fingerprinting browsers, uh, Panopticlick. One of the things that Panopticlick uses to lock on to users that make us look so unique is that user agent string because it's got all this version information. It's getting longer and longer. It's just a, a rich, harvestable source of, of, of info. So imagine that you don't want your browser, your system to be sending that information. Something like a local proxy can fix that because essentially it's it's in the connection between you and the between your browser and the internet. Your browser being told to not connect directly out to, for example, Google.com, but to route all connections through through the local host, as it's called, you know, 127.001 is, is always the, an IP for your own machine. So the server sets itself, this proxy server running in your computer sets itself up on your own machine and your browser makes all of its connections there. It receives this request with all the browser headings and, for example, cookies as well are, are all available to it. And these... Uh, and local proxies like like um, Prox Proxomatron and Provoxy are able to go in and snip out things. They can blank them out. They they can remove headers. They can add headers. Essentially, they're they're very powerful, typically script driven editors, sort of on the fly editors. If anything going out and coming in, remember that you make your request to it. It can edit the request and then send it out on your behalf. When it receives the reply and it comes back to it rather than to you, it's able to do any kind of filtering that you might want done. And that this is why this 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 Provoxy was originally called the Internet Junk Buster, was it would do all kinds of of stripping of of ads and other junk from incoming pages. So that so that you know now we have add-ons in our browsers that do that. But when you think about it, um, if we have different browsers, like, like you know, many of us have IE and Firefox, some may be experimenting with, with Chrome and, and, and some people use Opera. Well, the features available on any given browser are going to be a function of its own capabilities and what plugins are available. Not all of the same plugins are available for all of these different browsers. This sort of centralizes that job in one location. 
And in fact, you could also have these things running on one computer in a household network and have all the browsers in the household network told to use that one computer as their gateway to the web, as their proxy, in which case you can centralize the, the kind of filtering and, and configuration, basically web page editing that you do on the fly. So that's another very powerful capability that, that proxies bring. And finally, there's a really interesting type of proxy which requires no configuration at all. That is, and, and this, for example, is what um, many people in, in China are using and in, in other organizations um, and, and even, for example, in schools that are, that are blocking Facebook access and Twitter access and so forth. All you have to do is go to a different website which where the website will proxy on your behalf and there are there are by all measures apparently tens if not hundreds of thousands of of proxies and you know open proxies that are available in the ways I've talked about that, that where you you configure your web browser to access them directly but also increasingly popular because they require no configuration are so-called anonymous web proxies. So you go to one of these sites, and and what you see when you go there is a just a, a field, a form field, prompting you for a URL. And so this is a website which you're visiting that is asking you where you really want to go, where you really want to visit. You enter your URL there, and that web server acting as a proxy that requires no configuration on your part, it goes and pulls the page on, on your behalf. It goes and gets the page and, and returns it to you. What it does in the process is very clever, though. They encode the, the domain that you have gone to in in the returning page so 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 what your what your browser url shows is the domain that is doing the proxying for you followed by a long tail of gobbledygook just cryptographic looking noise and any of the any of the page assets like scripts and CSS files and images, you know, all of those things, those are modified by this, by this proxy, which is interposed, which through your going through it has interposed itself. This proxy website modifies all the URLs, all the links on that page that comes back and all of the objects so that your web browser then asks for those objects to, to finish populating the page sort of as aliases of what they really are. Um, your web browser asks for those of this intermediate website, which turns around, looks up what they are or, or decrypts them, and then makes the request out on the Internet. That asset comes back, and you end up seeing a web page. Also, all the links 
if you if you like hover your mouse over the links, you'll see that none of them are links that 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 used to be. They're all obscured. They're all encrypted. What this means is that simply by routing your traffic through this website, which is essentially rewriting your web pages, you have you have hidden your actual IP from the site you're actually visiting because all of the requests come from this intermediate site and your own records, your own cache has no, has no privacy busting records in it. All it has are, are URLs of this intermediate server all the images it caches, anything it downloads, all the links it visits, any trail, any logs that are being kept are all obscured and they only have URLs of the intermediate server. And the the way these servers have been designed, all of those links expire. They're only good briefly. So nobody coming along afterwards looking at your browser cache can can look up those URLs and find out what they were for when you were pulling them. They're dead now. They go nowhere. Isn't that great? So it's really cool. And I got a big... Why do these guys do this? Is it just... Uh, I mean, well, they make okay, money so, at it? They charge a, a um, for the service? They're, they're free. Some of them offer like upsells for right. additional services. Okay. I got a kick out of... Uh, when I Googled just the phrase web proxy... I, uh, the first link that came up was a site <laughs> called HideMyAss.com. And it does a lot. It does anonymous email. It does yep. uh, port proxies, web proxies. It has a VPN. This is kind of interesting. The VPN is what they're selling. Yes. And so, but, it, you, but you can go, if you go to HideMyAss.com slash proxy, or just s- select that on the homepage, it'll take you to a page that's very lean, it simply has a place for you to fill in a URL. Yeah. And if you put something in there, then 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 hit enter, it will it will take you to that site and then but but notice it's edited the page. There's a a banner at the very top where you have some controls. You can say I want to remove cookies. I want to filter uh-huh. scripting. I want to do different things. So you can configure what it's what it's bringing back to you. And there are, there's like directproxyserver.com, onionproxy.com, onlineproxyservers.com. Leo, if you put in onlineproxyservers.com, and many of these are, there's that, that's a list oh, yeah. of hundreds of these open anonymous proxy sites. And so, you know, they build themselves as a means for allowing people who for whatever reason want to they want they don't want to leave records of where they visit now you know if you control your own computer that's probably not a problem but maybe you're visiting someone or you're in a library or or something you know you there might be an instance where you don't have you don't have the ability to like to like clean up after yourself or scrub your own trails if if you need to these services are always available so you just you just route yourself through one of these places and all of the logs all of the content that comes back is is 
is obfuscated by these these crypto tokens that have a, a, a short life. And um, it's certainly the case that organizations could get wise to this. For example, it's not like there's no way for your corporation to block hidemyass.com. They could block that. <laughs> of course they could. In addition to <laughs> LastPass, I mean, in, in addition to, um, uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter and other things. But I think that's why there are the numbers that there are. I mean, there's hundreds of these things, and you can go to direct proxy server or onion proxy or online proxy servers.com and just try them until you find some that, you know, your organization or your school district or, or whatever organization hasn't blocked. And that allows you to get out and get to Facebook and, and do whatever you want to. And I'm sure that's the same, the, the same approach that is being used for, for busting through you know, national boundary firewalls. Right. It's just there's just there's just too much available for um for for people who are trying to police this to to track down every last one of these, and they're they're coming and going very rapidly. So it's also a, a constant moving target. It is worth remembering, though, that that you need there's some implicit trust you're placing in these anonymous proxying services because while your computer isn't retaining a record of all of the URLs, the actual resolved locations that you've gone and you clicked on, they're all being, they're all being anonymized essentially. Um, that site that you go through, it knows your IP because you connected into it and it knows everything you actually did because you went to, um, well, b b because because it was forwarding your actual requests out, at, at, you know, after decrypting the, the 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 links that were that were that you were sending it, it knows where you went. Now, what I don't know, I haven't tried it, is if you can chain these. I don't know why you wouldn't be able to within one go to another, and if <laughs> if that works, then then. Then let's see. The one you connect to would have your IP, but it would have obfuscated URLs right, right. from the from the from the outer one. The outer one would know where you were really going, but it would not have your IP. It would only have the IP of the first one you connected to. So yes, if if they allow you to chain, and it's I can imagine they might be able to to detect each other. Um, but if they allow you to chain, then it would take it would take comparing records from both of them in order to backtrack, you know, and, and you know, and basically do what uh, what a single organization would have at a single point of of contact if you did if you did chain through them. That's what Tor does, right? That's the idea of Tor. Oh, uh, but Tor does it. With in more sophisticatedly, oh yeah, yeah, yeah industrial yeah. strength as, as we've as we've talked when we discussed and do delved into the detailed operation of Tor, but we've never talked about any of this before, and I thought that our listeners would find it interesting and maybe helpful and useful, if nothing else, to avoid waiting for their browsers to start up. Jimmy Mac three asks an interesting question in the chat room. Well, how does this affect SSL pages? A good question. Now, some of the better sites like Hide My Ass. Uh, you, you'll notice that on HideMyAss.com, because it is also a commercial provider, so they've got a little more technology, you can click there that you want SSL. 
and it will create an SSL connection between you and it. So that so that's a perfect example of one way to surf safely in a open Wi-Fi. Um, there are there um, in, in these in these big lists of proxy servers. They often show whether the proxy server supports SSL, and that means SSL between you and them. And that's what you want when you're in an open Wi-Fi hotspot. So if you used a service that that you that looked reputable, that you felt you could trust, like HideMyAss.com, um, uh, which is the first thing that comes up if you Google web space proxy, then they do offer an SSL option. What that does is it connects your connection to them to SSL, meaning that your traffic then as, as you surf through them out to the internet to do Facebook or Google or whatever, that or, or a service, as a better example, that does not offer the SSL protection that you want, then you're at least protected from your traffic out to them. And then it would go non-SSL from mm. them out to the final destination. Good to remember that. Yeah. yeah. So that would be nice uh, if you're in, a, in an open Wi-Fi situation, if, if these are available there. Yeah. Steve, great subject. Very interesting. Of course, this is why these are so effective, and it's why regimes like Egypt just turn off the Internet. Because yeah. they know they can't really stop you in the long run. China's China is the same situation. And, of course, as you said, it's a huge consequence when you turn off the Internet. China's never going to be able to do that. Well, and, and I think it's the, the logic must be they're probably going to stop, you know, 95% of the people. Right. People who, who don't listen to this podcast. Right. People who, who aren't up on the technology, who just try to go somewhere with their computer and, oh, it doesn't work. Oh, we can't get there. Well, there are always ways around that, and yeah. proxying is is the the oldest and longest standing way, which is still standing today. Steve Gibson is the man at grc.com. That's the place to go for uh, Steve's great program, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, Spinrite. Yay! You can buy it there, and that's Steve's bread and butter, so we encourage you to do that as a form of support, if nothing else. And it's, you'll find and it's you want good it. for you. It's good for you. It's healthy. Yeah. Uh, he also has lots of free stuff there, including, of course, this podcast in both 64K full quality audio and 16 kilobit, uh, somewhat less full quality for those of you who are bandwidth impaired. He has the show notes there and transcriptions, too, which is, of course, the smallest way to participate in this show. And that's, a you know, you can read it. Absolutely. GRC.com. Next week, a Q&A. So if you want to ask a question about this or anything else Steve talks about or anything that's on your mind, go to GRC.com slash feedback. There's a form there you can fill out for a question. Can we tell our listeners about the uh, stream you've got of the Twit Studio being yeah, built? Yeah, sure. You can watch it being built at dropcam.com. Slash demo, I think, isn't it? demo. Yeah, it's... Yeah, uh, I'm not sure why it's demo because it's no longer the demolition. It's actually the building. But I guess we're stuck with the URL now. Oh, I thought I thought it was as in oh demo drop cam. You're right, and we're one. Okay, you're right. <laughs> and we're one of the ones on the left hand side there. New Twit Studios, and thank you drop cam because they're providing the bandwidth for this. We couldn't do it, and you can see what people are doing. Uh, at, yeah, so so at this so, very so, moment. This is the new Twit Studios. It's it's a camera stuck up in a corner that is basically looking out over the construction of your of where you guys are going to be in a couple months. Yeah, yeah. We're very excited about that. In fact, tonight I'm going over there with our designer, Roger, for his final you know, plans and the final approval. 
So we're you're going to see a lot more action in that camp uh, in the next few days as they start to actually construct the set. Good, because I think it's lunchtime right now, Leo. <laughs> There's nothing much going on. They're just kind of <laughs> quietly wandering. Hey, uh, uh, a program note about next week, and I haven't I haven't talked oh, to you yeah, about this the yet. Mac, the big March 2nd <laughs> announcement. Thank you for paying attention. Yeah. Yes. Now, it, it, it is now confirmed that March 2nd, Apple has an announcement. We don't know what it is, but we presume it's iPads. It may even be new MacBooks. Um, so uh, that will happen during the, what we would denominate the time that we would record this show. So what I'd like to do with you, if you don't mind, is swap this show with MacBreak Weekly. Perfect. So we, we do me on Tuesday. Yeah, we'll do you on Tuesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern at live.twit.tv. And this Wednesday slot, which is normally your slot, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Wednesdays, uh, next Wednesday will be Mac a special edition of Mac Break Weekly. As once That's again, perfect. I try to incur the wrath of Apple. <laughs> Successfully, no doubt. Well, I, you know, I, I, I haven't gotten an invitation ever since uh, that January iPad announcement. It's now the one-year anniversary of that. Uh, so I have a feeling I'm, I'm persona non grata there. But you know what? We have ways. And we will you cover do. it live. We've got lots of great uh, people here. And so that's exciting. So thank you. I, I was going to ask you. So you, that's okay with you. Yep, absolutely. No okay. problem. I'm glad we, uh, we covered it. Good. See, we'll see you next Tuesday. Thanks, Leo. On Security Now. Security Now.